matter of our own salvation, who we were, who we are. God, my prayers, it speaks to us in really a deep way this morning. I pray all the same in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to explore a profound passage, the, the follow-up of, of the, the addendum to the, the, the hymn, the, the poem we looked at last week, beginning in verses 21 through 23. And in these verses, we find ourselves on a journey that shows our before and after picture, the before and after picture of the work of salvation. It's a journey that's going to take us from alien from alienation to reconciliation, from hostility to peace, from blame to blameless, from adversaries to family, from chaos to Christ, all in this one passage. And at the heart of this transformation is not our works, but the unparalleled work of Christ on the cross. So let's read together in these brief verses. And you, now and, why and? Follow up from 15 through 20. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast, stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. In, in, uh, in movie writing, there's a concept called Freytag's Pyramid. Anybody ever heard of that? Mike, I figured if anybody in the room had heard of it, it would be you. Um, Christine, I'm really interested to hear why you, you did that, that concept. It's such a kind of an obscure thing. Freytag's Pyramid is this. It's the, it's the outline for the dramatic story arc of the movie. It, it, most movies follow this format. If you know the format, I may ruin all movies for, for you when I tell you this because most movies follow this format. The format is six stages. You have the setup, the crisis or the incident, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, and then the resolution. And that's how you write. I mean, that's how most good stories go, right? The wrapping up, the, the resolution is the wrapping up of everything you've seen in the movie up to that point, the end. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't know anything about Freytag's Pyramid when he wrote Colossians 1, 20, 21 through uh, uh, 23, or 15 through 23, really. But there is something similar in what he writes. If, if this story were a movie, it would open with a setup. The scene in the movie would be where the, the setup would be the main characters, the setting, the situations introduced, the audience gets a feel for the world and its rules. So the setup would open, if we were starting in 15, it would open with this breathtaking depiction of the, of the cosmos, born uh, in this otherworldly, unforeseen force, the, the invisible God, the, the image is embodied in, in this singular being of radiant light, the firstborn, the preeminent Christ. All the galaxies would form, the, the, the stars would ignite, the planets would take shape, and it's clear that every celestial and terrestrial entity, every power, every dominion, everything visible and invisible is crafted by him, through him, for him. And as time flows, we're shown the intricate balance of the universe, the, the dance between the movement of the planets. 
the 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 everything held together, even the web of life on earth held together by this preeminent one, this and he the one who's the cosmic glue, the cosmic principle, the the cosmic head that holds all things together. We would see in this scene something so great, so awe-inspiring, so obviously greater than anything else in the universe that obviously anybody else in this world is going to worship and honor this preeminent one. But in the next scene, what we're going to see is a city that's abounding with life. People are rushing around. They're they're, they're lost in their own worlds. They're disconnected. They're oblivious to the divine. You see skyscrapers reaching the sky that are symbolizing humanity's attempt to reach the divine, but failing. There's no peace. There's only noise and there's chaos. And so the camera zooms in on individuals. You, you see a businessman greedily making unethical deals, a group of teenagers mocking a street preacher, a, a family arguing at the dinner table, a teacher dismissing the idea of faith in the classroom, a, 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 a group on the street supporting abortion rights, and a doctor talking about children, to children about puberty blockers, and all seemingly scenarios that in the grand scheme of things don't seem that big a deal, but they underline a subtle hostility towards God and his principles. And in their eyes, they're independent. They're masters of their own domain. They are seen as laughing at religious broadcasts. They're seen dismissing Christian thought. They're, they're seen pursuing their own desires with disregard for anything related to the divine. And the hostility isn't necessarily always aggressive. Most of the time, it's apathetic. It lacks understanding of what reconciliation means and what's needed to be reconciled with the divine. The scene ends with a panoramic shot of the city at dusk. The sun setting is casting long shadows, and you see it as a metaphorical babble, unaware of a need for God, hostile in their ignorance, proud of their perceived self-sufficiency, setting the stage for the climax, which is the transformative power of Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul describes the Colossian Christians. He comes out of that poem exalting the preeminence of our majesty, Jesus Christ, and he says, And you who were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The interesting thing about this journey is before Christ, we're like lost explorers who don't know we're lost. We think the entire time we're heading the right direction. We're like Christopher Columbus, who sailed the ocean blue in 1492. He was under the belief that if he sailed west, he could find a shortcut to Asia and, and get a shortcut to these, these spices that were good, which is for us, he was trying to get to modern-day Indonesia. But he had a problem, and that's his calculations for the circumference of the earth were way off. And he did not know that the American continent lay between him and his goal. So when he reached the Caribbean, he thought he was in Asia. So he proceeded to explore that region under this misconception. Even after his first voyage, Columbus maintained his belief that he had reached Asia. It took years decades before Americo Vespucci traveled and went back and said, hey, hey, dude, you were wrong. 
Here's the thing. Columbus was lost and wrong the entire time, but he reveled in his ignorance and his arrogance. He took pride in it. See, his Columbus's voyage was fueled by a desire to reach Asia, but in reality, he was heading in the wrong direction and didn't even know it. He was alienated from the truth, and that truth was the geography of the earth and didn't realize it. And just as Columbus didn't realize he was lost, there are humans don't realize they're spiritually lost and in need of reconciliation with God. And just as Columbus' actions led to a tragic alienation between multiple cultures, sin causes tragic alienation between individuals, between humans, and between God where we miscalculate our relationship with God and we do not understand the need for reconciliation with God. There's an important concept to understand at the beginning of this. It's actually the same concept that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 4. When he talked about, he, in Ephesians, he called it the futility of the mind. In Colossians, he calls it a hostile mind. So he's saying an un, unregenerated, unsaved, unreconciled, whatever term you want to use, has a hostile mind. Even when they don't want to admit, they know that they're hostile towards righteousness. That's what Paul's referring to here. See, it's not, it's not simply this issue that we've developed some bad habits that are sinful. That's not what Paul's referring to. It's way deeper than that. See, when you talk about the mind, this, Paul's not referring to the stuff that's just floating around in our head. He's talking about how our minds work, how we think, how we understand things, how we make sense of the world. He's talking about how we perceive everything around us. So the perception for the unbeliever of everything around them is hostile to the things of God. And the thing is, when our thinking gets messed up, it starts influencing our actions and vice versa. Y'all are aware of that. You see that if you've ever raised kids, you see that. It's one of the reasons you try to get them thinking along the right track. And one of the reasons you try to get them to avoid certain people. And the thing is, when this thinking gets messed up, we start this vicious cycle where our minds and behaviors feed off each other, and we end up in this spiral of darkness. And you know what? This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1, 21 through 32, if you're familiar with that. We just read it a couple of weeks ago. He shows the distorted thinking leads to immoral behavior, and in turn, it messes with the minds even more. So it's like this situation where people's minds, although they have a sense of what's right, they end up applauding and celebrating what God considers evil. So they're not only alienated from God, they're hostile in their thinking towards God. And it tells us they know it, they, so they're without excuse. Now, as we journey in our story, we have to get to what would be called the crisis or the inciting incident. And what would that be? See, so this is the point in the story where the protagonist, the hero, realizes that something has happened. There's a crisis that has come, and it's got to be overcome. Now, in our story, who's the hero? Thank you, Steve. Yes, I'm glad you got that right. That could have been bad. Listen. You are not the hero of your story. Now, there's a bunch of people on TikTok right now that'll tell you you are. But they're all like 16 years old, and they're kind of 
just not that bright. So don't listen to 16-year-olds on TikTok. You're not the hero of your story. We are not the protagonist in our story. We're actually the enemy in our story. We're the bad guy. And the inciting incident is the revelation when Jesus in his divine compassion becomes aware of the desperate need for reconciliation and chooses to do something about it. That's the incident. Despite our lack of desire and our inability to reconcile ourselves with God, Jesus is moved by love and he willingly takes on the task of bridging the gap between us and the Father. And this realization sparks a a mission to seek and save the lost and sets in motion a remarkable journey of reconciliation. And then we have the rising action, the point in the story where the enemy tries to fix the issue themselves. The scene shows struggles and attempts of individuals to find peace and reconciliation through effort, their own effort. And in the rising action, we might see something like Sally, who is a successful businesswoman on on paper. It looks like she's got it all. She's got wealth. She's got fame. She's got a thriving career. And despite these accomplishments, what she actually has is emptiness and a lack of true peace in her life. She tries to fill that void through career achievement and material possessions and relationships and self-improvement programs. However, when it unfolds, she realizes it's all temporary. Or we might have Marcus, who's a recovering drug addict who's battled with substance abuse for years. He's tried countless rehab programs and he has moments where he thinks finally this is going to be the time where it works. But ultimately he realizes it's temporary and he can't find peace either. Or you've got Alyssa who, who because of her past mistakes carries this extreme weight of guilt and shame for bad choices in life. And she's constantly seeking forgiveness and cannot find it. And so she struggles. She discovers that self-imposed penance still doesn't bring restoration. And these examples just demonstrate the human quest for peace and reconciliation that through individual effort will not happen. Despite their best intentions, despite sincere endeavors, they ultimately realize the limitations of trying to reconcile with the divine in their own strength but it sets the stage for the climax where the intervention of Christ becomes the turning point and the ultimate solution to yearning for peace. And do you know what the climax is? You got to know. Come on, you got to see where this is going, right? What's the climax? Steve, what do we got? We got Jesus. Crucifixion. Thank you. Both. We'll go crucifixion and resurrection. We'll just cover it all. Cover it all. See what we see In the cross is our hero, the one we saw at the beginning of the story, the preeminent one, the firstborn of all creation, the creator of all, the one that holds it together, now is no longer invisible, no longer hidden. He's now in human form with a frail, temporal, physical body just like us. Those he's trying to save. And then God in his holiness and justice reacts to human sin with wrath, but the reconciliation focuses on human frailty. It it focuses on the the lack of relationship with God. See, reconciliation means that, that God accepts humans sinful as they are, listen, knowing that he can't clear the guilty. Here's what that means. 
because he's holy, because he is justice, he can't just ignore the sin of humanity and just pretend that it didn't happen. Through the merit of another, Jesus Christ, offenders are set right with God. Those who were hostile become friends, and his love revealed in Christ is poured into their hearts. So there's a change that occurs. And so the hero Christ is crucified. His body is beaten. His, his nailed to a cross. He's stabbed, hung on a cross. And now those who follow him are, according to Colossians 1.21, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, the emphasis that Paul places here on the physical body is a big deal. For one, it's heresy to not believe that Jesus did not physically rise from the dead. All right? That's actually heresy. If you ever hear somebody say, well, he was spiritually resurrected. You can just, I don't know what an H would look like, but you can curse him with an H sign. But uh, it's heresy. And there are there's some out there that believe that and, and claim the name of Christian. But, that's kind of a side note to what Paul is trying to get to here. You have to remember, we're still dealing with this issue of, of false teaching that's coming into the Colossian church. When Paul talks about the physical body, we, you are reconciled through the physical body of Christ through his death. Here's what it does. First, it reminds us that Jesus' death wasn't some abstract spiritual, spiritual concept. It was a real historic event that happened in this world. And it reinforces that God's grace is not just an idea, but it's something that's demonstrated in a tangible act in human history. People, nobody's arguing. Even, even people who don't believe in God won't argue that a guy named Jesus lived on earth and died on a cross. Second, highlighting the physical aspect of Christ's life and death and resurrection prevents us from turning these into just symbols or metaphors. See, Jesus wasn't just a spiritual figure or a nice idea. He lived and walked among us. He experienced the same things we experienced. He, he experienced joys and struggles. And his death on the cross was a real physical sacrifice that bore the weight of our sins. And the practical implications of this for us as believers is that the physicality of Jesus' death means that our salvation has real-world consequences. It's not just some abstract concept floating out there. We, when we accept Jesus as Savior, our sins are truly, actually forgiven, and our lives are truly, genuinely transformed. It's a powerful reminder that God's grace isn't just a theoretical or symbolic concept. It's a tangible, practical event that has real impact on our lives. So when we read about his Christ's physical body in these passages, we're reminded that Jesus fully identifies with us. The firstborn, the creator, the preeminent one, identifies with us. He took on humanity and experienced suffering because of us, the weight of sin. He canceled those sins. He defeated the powers of darkness. And he reminds us of the depth of God's love for us, and that has real-world implications on our faith. And now we get to verse 22. We get to the falling action. We the second half of 22. We see in our story the purpose of all this. We see why our hero, the radiance of glory creation himself, became a man 
in order to take those who were once enemies and make them friends of God. That's reconciliation. But look at what it says the main purpose is here in verse, the second part of 22. It, it, so the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God could be presented to God at the judgment as holy, blameless, above reproach. Here's, so no accusation can be brought against them. By who? By the accuser of the brethren. Who's that? Steve, you're on a roll, man. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan. Or anybody else. As if anybody else mattered. No accusation can be brought because God doesn't see their sin any longer. It's been cast into the sea. Cast as far as the... California, that thing messes with me. East is from the west. I'm pretty sure I got that right. All right? When it makes that dip in L.A., it messes with my east-west, Bob. So, all right? Think about the miracle that takes place in that moment. Those who now follow the hero, those who now follow Jesus Christ, are seen by God the way he sees Jesus. When he looks at the reconciled, the saved, the regenerated, he sees the purity and holiness and the blamelessness of the hero, Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of salvation. We are presented to God as above reproach, blameless. I know y'all don't feel that way. I'm just telling you, that's, that's the way it is. All right? We're going to talk about that in a minute. So finally, we have the resolution of our story, right? The final outcome, the story's plot. We're wrapping up the story. The place in the story where the characters and the situation is a lot different than the setup because what should happen in the resolution is you ex the, the some group experiences growth or change. And for our story, the hero and the enemy are now friends. Because there has been change, there's a peace, true peace, eternal peace, everlasting peace that's found because it was given to us by our hero. And so now we live a life determined to please the hero, to see him as preeminent, to see him as worthy of honor, to follow his teaching, to do his work, to, to serve his cause in the kingdom. And then the credits start rolling. But there's an end credit scene, all right? But it's just like screenshots of everybody in heaven. That's just the end, the end credits, and then that's it. It's over. It's not over. It keeps going on for eternity, but... The movie's over, right? You have to figure out what happens the rest of it on your own. Don't get too excited. That's the end of the story. It's not the end of the sermon, okay? All right. I want us to look at verse 23. Still part of the journey, but I want to slow down a bit. I want to change my approach. I want to address something very specific here. It says 21 through 23 are one long sentence. I'm going to read the whole thing again. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, if you're not careful, and you read 23, and you don't have a good understanding of the scriptures. You're going to assume that verse 23 places conditions on salvation or places conditions on reconciliation. We'll work that way. 
all this seems to work out if. Now, this is a good place to consider the analogy of faith that we talked about in the intro sermon. I'm sure y'all probably don't remember that, but um, here's analogy of faith means this scripture interprets scripture that which means the doctrines and teachings found in the Bible are interconnected and they should be understood in the context of the central message of the faith, the overall view of the scriptures. Scripture doesn't contradict scripture. So when you run into something that looks like a contradiction, you have to assume you just don't know what you're looking at, right? And got to figure it out. And that's not a bad thing. That's why we delve into the word. We read the word. We know the word. We understand it. And so we know from other verses that our security and salvation is not conditional. All right? There's a ton of verses on that. We don't have to look at those. We know we didn't earn it. We know we can't do anything to lose it. We know that the Holy Spirit works in true believers to make sure we persevere in our journey towards Christ's likeness. And that while, we're, while we were, we started with hostile minds, we started with warped thinking and desire for sin. The Spirit of God now works in us, renewing our minds changing our thinking, pointing us towards the truth, and uses that for love and good works, right? We know all that from other passages. So what does it mean when it says you are reconciled if you continue in the faiths? F.F. Bruce said that if the gospel teaches the final perseverance of the saints, it teaches at the same time that the saints are those who finally persevere in Christ. Continuance is a test of reality. Here's what that means. If you continue in the faith, it reveals that you are truly one of the chosen believers. And if you do not, then you were not. So in Colossians 1.23, the if clause doesn't introduce a condition we need to fulfill for salvation. Rather, it serves as a distinguishing definition of genuine faith rather than just a mere profession of faith. Those who truly belong to Christ will persevere in the faith, not because they're keeping themselves saved, but because the grace of God that saved them also keeps them. You might be familiar with uh, 1 John 2.19, which says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Now, that verse is really clear on what Paul's uh, Paul, John's talking about there. There were some in the Christian community that had chosen to leave or separate themselves from that community. And John's basically saying, look, they left because they weren't actually part of us. They weren't actually believers. They left the fates. But I have an opinion that one of the reasons sometimes when we hit verses like this, we struggle, is because there's some... I don't know, sometimes sloppy language surrounding the concept of sanctification. And that's what I want just to spend a few minutes talking. This is something I've been working on, working through for months now. And, and uh, so there are, I want you to think of it this way. There's two sides to the doctrine of sanctification. Depending on who you talk to, there's multiple terms they'll use for that, but those aren't really vital for us this morning. It's important that we understand both of these, or verses like 23 are going to do one of two things. They're going to leave us confused at best and legalistic at worst. And I don't want that for us. I don't want us confused or legalistic. 
So sanctification is usually described as how we as Christians grow in holiness over time. It's seen as the ongoing work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, conforming them to the image of Christ. And you can find all kinds of passages that discuss that. However, it's often talked about like the more we learn and the more we live out our faith, the closer to God we get and the more sanctified and the more holy we become. And that's usually, when you hear sanctification, that's the only way it's ever talked about. But here's the interesting part. The majority of the passage in Scripture that talk about sanctification don't talk about it in that way. Instead, it talks about sanctification as something that's already happened because of our connection with Jesus. In other words, because we believe in Jesus, we are already seen as holy and set apart for God's purposes. So instead of becoming holy, we're already there thanks to Jesus. This is what Paul means in verse 22 when he says, you were this, now you are this. You were hostile in your mind. You were doing evil deeds. Now I can present you as holy, blameless, above reproach. How? Because of Christ. There are some verses that talk about this, us being sanctified as a process. That's true. But the New Testament overwhelmingly uses sanctification, holiness terms, in, in what we are and what we have in Christ. And it, it's a certain status and a relationship we enjoy because of our salvation. In Him, we're consecrated. 1 Corinthians 1 2 calls us saints. Not you're going to be saints, you are saints, made for His possession and use. Christ is our sanctification, according to 1 Corinthians 1 30. Christians are people who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 6, 11, Acts 20, 32, Hebrews 10, 10, 14, 1, 1 Peter 1, 2. We are holy by virtue of God's calling and our faith union with him. So think of it like this. You're holy positionally. God sees you as holy, but we are what the reformers referred to as at the same time, just and sinner. Jeff put it on his Facebook yesterday. Simul used us at peccator, Latin for at the same time, just and sinner. So there is a already not yet aspect to this. And, and let me ask you a question. Anybody in this room feel holy? Right? So you're probably saying, Pastor Scott, I don't really think you know me that well. I do, because I know myself. I don't feel holy either. So, But we are all saying we're already holy doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing, that we don't work on ourselves as Christians, that, that if we say... Some people, when they hear this kind of thing, they go, oh, so you just mean that like, I don't have to really do anything. I don't have to be in the Word. I don't have to gather with the saints. I don't have to pray. I don't have to do good works. You know, the Holy Spirit's just in me. He's just going to make it happen. Well, I mean, yeah, I sort of, kind of, but is that really how you want to live as a Christian? Uh, Maybe. I'm going to go with maybe. I'm not going to go with yeah, because if that's your attitude, you're probably in that 1 John 2.19 camp who went out from us. All right, so, but if we're already holy, 
All right, think about it like this. It, it doesn't mean we get to just sit back and chill because we're already seen as holy. We need to live lives in a way that reflects the status of who we are. But our motivation is not to become holy. Our motivation isn't to earn points with God. And I'm afraid that's what happens when we look at this kind of thing is I need to earn God points. We work on becoming better Christians, not to become holy, but because we're already holy. It changes the motivation. It, it's not a guilt-based, guilt-driven motivation. It's not a legalistic motivation. It should be a joyous motivation to become what you already are. The funny thing is, a lot of different Christian groups have their own ways of understanding sanctification. Some call it a journey towards perfection. There's a perfectionist group. Usually that's the... the uh, a Wesleyan Methodist, a lot of them have a perfectionism tied to their sanctification. There's the, the Keswick, we got to let go and let God um, group. You know, you get, get to come super Christians that way. And, um, and you know, this whole process of just surrendering. If you just surrender to God, he'll, you know, I never could figure out exactly how you did that because uh, they didn't seem to be that super Christian to me, but I guess they're still figuring it out. But the common thread here is all these perspectives is that sanctification is something we strive to achieve. And we're not striving to achieve sanctification. You're already sanctified. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It's not the same thing. Don't misunderstand. The New Testament, it flips the script on this. It talks about sanctification as something we are, something we have, thanks to our connection with Jesus. So we're saints we're sanctified in Christ, so it's not about what we do. It's about who we are. It's about, listen, it's about what Jesus has already done, not what we do. Now, of course, we are expected to live holy. A ton of verses talk about that. That's why we're encouraged to purify ourselves, to live in a way that shows respect for God, to, to uh, well, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what this is referring to. But instead of using the term sanctification, a lot of times the, the New Testament describes that process as renewal or transformation, like the renewing of your mind, those, those kinds of verses. And they're, they're, you know, theologians, you know, that love them. God love them. I, I love to read them because they're smarter than me. But they come up with a lot of terms to tie to this thing where they're like, say, well, you got definitive sanctification and positional sanctification, and that all culminates in progressive sanctification and and that's all good. And if you're in those books, read them. They're 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 great. But even with these clarifications, it's a lot. It's 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 too easy to get lost in the semantics of lose sight of the real meaning of sanctification. Because while it's important to strive towards godliness, it's equally important to remember that you're already holy in Christ. You need to you need to you need to know both sides of that coin. That's the foundation we build on. And so so our efforts. To live godly lives wouldn't make much sense without both sides of those coins. So remember, our status as holy people isn't tied to our efforts or progress. It's a gift that's given to us through Jesus Christ. And while we're called to live and grow in godliness, we don't do it to earn holiness. We do it to become what we already are. And I bring this up for a reason. I want you to live in godliness but I want you to have joy in the process. 
and I'm a little sensitive to this because I grew up in the South, and the South is very legalistic. It's a very guilt-driven culture. And as, and I've, as I've spent years trying to work through that and ditch some of that retributionary God who's up there just waiting to zap me with lightning anytime I mess up, or got to get saved again, you didn't get it right the first time, I'm going to stop or somebody in the South is going to watch this and get mad at me. So your relationship with God, you are reconciled to God, presented as above reproach, blameless. Your relationship with God is not conditional on what you do. That's legalism and it's damaging. There's nothing, it's honestly, it's nothing more than watered down Arminianism, which says you're saved by grace and kept by works. So our motivation for living righteous is not tied to conditions. It's motivated by our love for Christ and what he's already done for us. So you're motivated by seeing Christ as the preeminent one, the firstborn, the one worthy of honor and glory, and praise, and following, and doing what he's asked us to do because of what he's done for us. That's why Paul said, if you continue in the faith, not continue in your faith. The faith is the gospel message and everything that entails, including our sanctification. In one sense, it is indeed a journey of transformation. There's a sense in which this process where we become more like Christ over time, made possible by God's amazing grace. You'll hear me refer to it as a journey towards Christ's likeness. I love that terminology. But at the end of this, Paul gives us a little bit of hope. So it's the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now, we're back to reconciling all of creation back in the early part of last week. That this reconciliation is not just for humanity. He's reconciling all of creation. I didn't have uh, Mike read it this morning. If you go back to Romans 5, it's about creation groaning, longing for this day. But I got to be honest with y'all. I can stand up here and say all this, but it's a lot easier to say it than it is to hold on to it. The world around us can be pretty persuasive. It's got its own rhythms. It's got its own priorities. It's got its own secular materialistic viewpoint, its own worldview, and its jaded worldview. And sometimes we end up feeling like puppets to the powers that be. Like, it's a, there's a lot coming against us. And I'll be honest, it, it, it can be pretty easy to put our day-to-day survival, our jobs, our homes ahead of our fates. We live in a world that does not value you as a Christian. We just don't. Here's the thing. I'm not knocking for that. They shouldn't. They're not Christians. They're living what they know with a hostile mind. Don't blame lost people for acting like lost people. But we still live in that world that's tough. And remember this, faith is not a badge, it's victory. 
a victory we share with Christ, and it's going to cost us, but man, it's worth it. Paul, Paul is painting a picture here for us, and it's like using these words to create a roadmap that goes beyond the here and now and points us to what's coming, telling us, look, this reconciliation is for all of creation. Every problem, everything you see when you look at this world right now and go, what in the world is going on? Has everybody lost their flipping mind? That's my morning. Every morning I see something pop up and I go, what in the world? What is this nonsense that I'm seeing? Doesn't make logical sense. Doesn't make scientific sense. It's just made up. And we're supposed to just go, oh, yeah, I hear you. That's your truth. Let me give you a hug. We'll hug it out. And I'll go on and call you whatever it is you want me to call you. And I'm just being, I ain't doing that. You know why? I got a whole lot of really, really good thought out reasons for it. But I'll just give you like my gut reason. Because it's dumb. It's just dumb. I'm not, not doing it. First of all, I'm not going to be a liar. I didn't, I'm not going there. I'm going to stop. All right. So the hope is in the restoration of everything I just ranted about. It's coming. I wish it would come a lot sooner than it's come. I don't think it could come in, come in a few seconds, but it ain't happened yet. So I'm just giving, trusting, leaning on the hope in the gospel that all of creation is going to be reconciled. But until that day, I still live here. I still have social media, which I probably I'll just ditch. I mean, honestly, uh, I think we'd all be better off if we did. But something I don't know is I, I maybe I'm addicted. I don't have any idea. But Paul says, look, shift your gaze. That's what he's telling his Colossians. Shift your gaze. You got this group over here telling you, look over here. No, you've heard the gospel. You know the gospel. You know the truth. And here it is. He's the preeminent one. He's the one that died on the cross for you. He's all you need. And so we look beyond that, the day-to-day, to to see the bigger picture, the end game. And once we do that, we are more than prepared to face whatever may pop up on Facebook this week or Instagram if you're not over 50 and TikTok if you're under 30 or I'll probably get in trouble if I keep going. So. There's a lot coming out of this church, but the hope, our hope is that this is not the end and that no matter what we see now, there's a day coming when it's all going to be reconciled. 